In 2003, one toxic friendship led to murder. Almost 20 years later, one of the killers has a shot at freedom. Can the timeline of events prior to the crime help us understand the motive behind it? This is the story of the murder of Kelly Bullwinkle. Today, I have summoned us all here to shit on a man, which is the only part of this story that makes me a little bit excited, because the story is grim. This, this case is so, so bloody heavy, okay? So I just wanted us all to have a light moment all together. I need you, if you were the unfortunate enough person to be crushing over a man at some point in your life, I need you to picture yourself from this perspective, from your, like, aged and grown-ass person, Picture the crush, the man that you have crushed on when you were 15 years old, okay? From this perspective, that person looks mediocre as fuck, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Even at that age, right? Like, you're still picturing them being 15, you're like, what was all the fuss about? Like, why do I lose my mind over this man? Like, they're just mediocre as white man. Or whatever race they are, okay? They're mediocre as they're like, yeah, like a teenage boy, whatever. However, then picture the way that they have aged disgusting, right? Am I right? Men just do not age well. Men do not age well. I'm sorry, but like the receding hairline, the like beard, it ain't it. It just ain't it. The personality, it just ain't it. Oh, the like preconceived notions of the society because they're a man, because patriarchy, it's not it. It's not hot. It's just not it. Now I know, there will be some of you disagreeing with me and being like, I have always made peak choices, Maya. I have married my high school sweetheart. And to you, round of applause. Round of applause. I, my own teenage choices could not have been trusted. And it's so wild to me that in the story we are going to be talking about today, some people killed for those choices. For the choices of friends that they have made and for the choices of lovers and, like, love interests that they have made. That is wild to me. So, like, take this as, like, a bigger sister advice, especially on the friendship level. Something that I would give, like, as a piece of advice to my younger brother, to my friends, to myself a couple of months ago, a couple of years ago, literally at any period of my fucking life, is make better friends and kick the shitty friends out of your life. Sometimes those motherfuckers do not mean you well. Sometimes they want you dead. I don't know how to explain this, but I have had friends in my life where I was like, I feel like you do not want me, like, alive and thriving. Like, you don't want me having a pulse. I don't know how to explain this. However, I don't feel like you want my presence. <laughs> I don't feel like you want me here. Also, I'm not really 100% sure, like, you want me alive and just, like, living. So I'm just going to exclude myself out of this situation, because, like, what the fuck, bro? <sighs> There's nothing worse than having shitty friends and just having zero joy in your life. Eliminate them. They don't need an explanation. If you, yes, want to be a bigger person, want to be a mature person and give them an explanation why you're removing them out of your life, do it. Just remove them. I don't know why I went off on a tangent there, but this is seriously, like, the advice that I would give my younger self, like, five million times over. Just repeat it to myself. Like, if somebody is shitting on everybody in their life, they will most probably shit on you as soon as you turn your back. Like, you, you won't even make, like, a few steps. They'll be, like, shitting on you, like, Maya, that big. No, if somebody doesn't have anything nice to say about anybody, they will not have anything nice to say about you. That's it. 
That's the bottom fucking line. Let us dive into the story. Eliminate shitty friends out of your life. Be so much happier. I cannot explain. I cannot actually explain. Okay, let's dive into the story of the day. Detective Unit, this is another case that came about after I have watched the Todd Grande video. This man is famous for short form, right? So, like, he gives all the details concisely. It's like the complete opposite of me, right? <laughs> just think about, like, the polar opposites. So, when I listened to this case, I just did not understand the dynamics. And that's the part that I hate the most. I did not understand why the pair of killers that we will be talking about today, why did they commit this crime? I did not understand that. And because of this friendship, I was like, I need to look into this in as many little tiny pieces of detail possible. So, of course, I sat down and found as many court documents, as many articles on this story out there to try to portray, like, the timeline of events, who these people are, in order to understand why this crime was committed. And even after doing this, this video will probably be over two hours long, okay? Even after over two hours of this, I still feel like I need your help, and I still feel like this is one of the most senseless crimes that I have ever covered. I'm not here encouraging, like, oh no, sometimes murder makes sense. It doesn't. It doesn't. It just doesn't equate towards whatever you are, like, doing and considering, like, the rightful punishment, right? Like, whether it is vigilantism, whether it is revenge, whether it is whatever the hell it is, like, murder is never, never justified. However, there are some cases when I'm like, truly, what the fuck, why did this person have to die? Like, it's so, so senseless. There have been cases on this channel where you have put in the comments, like, a mother killing a murderer or, like, an assaulter of, like, her child. Like, you don't condone it, however you understand it. You understand why a mother would do something like that. Here, you simply cannot understand why these two individuals killed somebody who was considered to be their friend. The friendship part brings me to, like, another video that I have watched on this case. If you are new here, I hate reenactment-style videos. It's just always so bizarre the way that they find these actors that look nothing like the actual people. And it's just, I don't know, like, the style is so... it's kind of tasteless to me. Like, I would rather just watch interviews with their family members and, like, police interrogations, like, actual live footage, rather than just watch somebody reenact something. I don't know, it's just weird to me, right? But I have watched this series, well, rather the episode on the series that's, I think, on Investigation Discovery. It's called Mean Girl Murders. This is how this episode was introduced, okay? I had to read this out to you, and you will probably figure out why it uh, triggers me. Although there will be two killers here, and the man played a key role in Kelly's death, Mean Girl Murders producers said, the DNA of a Mean Girl Murder story is the female dynamics, why women become friends, how they treat each other, and how those relationships can go so wrong and evolve into a tragic crime. Like, it sounds to me like you're calling women hysterical and some shut the fuck upping has to be done. Because there are two people here that pulled the trigger. There are two people that planned this crime, plotted it, controlled everything up, and then did everything possible to cover up their tracks. So there was, like, premeditation, post-meditation, the actual murder, all of that stuff. And, like, producers of a show would know that. There are two people that were charged and then convicted. So how are we blaming this solely on one person? Because 
one of the many reasons why I have dived into this case to figure out what the fuck, like wh what the hell. And even after it, you will be the judge of that. What was the dynamic of the pair of killers and had they had equal parts in this murder? For us to unravel that story, we have to start from the background. We have to go to the very beginning. And that brings us to California, the city of Redlands to be particular. At the time, Redlands had a population of about 63,000. Now it has about 10k more than that. This series will tell you that murder is just something that never happened there. It did happen in LA, but it would never happen in Redlands, the naval orange capital of the world. You know, the oranges, they're kind of shaped like boobs, kind of has like a protruding nipple. Yeah, those ones, those ones. In 2002, Redlands had no murders, like there was no homicide in the area. And about growing up here, this series gives us an insight. From this episode, we learned that this was a very religious town. And about the school, the high school where all of the kids in this story are going to be going to, it was kind of crappy. There was a clear separation between the cool kids and the stoners. And then there would be a whole separate crowd of the goth kids roaming about. One of those quote-unquote goth kids will be Kelly Bullwinkle. She was born to now late Diana Bullwinkle, and the two of them would be living together. Like, Diana would be bringing her up as a single mother. She was born on June the 8th, 1985, in Petaluma, California. Her parents would separate when Kelly would be only three years old, and this would mean that, like, from this point on, her and her mom shared a very strong bond. The two of them would be moving depending on Diana's job, because her mom worked for the U.S. Coast Guard, where her rank was the one of Chief Petty Officer and Health Services Technician. I just have to say, I need Petty in my job title. That is it. I googled it. I know now what it means. But when I first saw this, I was like, what do you mean? This is such a sick job title. I need it. I feel like the trajectory of my life had been changed when I learned about this woman's job position. Anyways, Diana would say that they would move around. So, like, they lived in Alaska for three years. And then once they returned home, she kind of, like, made this resolution to save her life's experiences and, like, really make them meaningful. So she decided, let's settle, let's settle for Redlands, and this is where Diana would spend the summers with her own father, who would remarry. So at some point, Kelly lived with her mom and her grandpa. Eventually, like, Redlands would be the place where they would settle in 1997. Due to the nature of her mom's job, Kelly would be spending a lot of time by herself. From the sounds of it, at the time of the murder, they lived with another friend of Diana's, of Kelly's mom's. So, like, this friend was called Laura, and she would, like, kind of live in the house. I don't know, is it a temporary arrangement? I don't know if, like, anything was going on there, but, like, basically she would be the one taking care of Kelly and of the pets that they would have whenever Diana would be on the cruise ships. Kelly would often have the house to herself, though. She loved horses, she would go horse riding, she played a clarinet and lettered in track and cross-country. I had to google this because I didn't know what lettering in cross-country and track means, and from what I checked, it just means that you make it onto the varsity team, like, 
really good at athletics and running and sports, right? Somebody will correct me if I'm not right, okay? Her friends and family would describe Kelly as an introverted, bubbly, and hardworking person. Something that everybody knew, like in terms of Kelly's talent, would be writing. She was described as a modern-day Annie Hall. She liked to shop at second-hand stores with the friends of hers and was known for being very crafty and making her own clothes. She had a natural talent for writing that would be recognized in her school as well. Like when she was a junior, she received an honorable mention award for an essay on the danger of drugs. And this talent was actually supposed to like bring her success, like bring her places in terms of university as well. She loved Redlands, she loved that they had settled there, but kind of like most of the teenagers in her school, she had dreams to possibly move away one day and study psychology and creative writing. And her plan at the time was Sonoma State. So like to go to Sonoma State in Northern California to study. As her and her mom would settle in Redlands in the late 90s, she arrived to Redlands East Valley High School in San Bernardino County. Now, she was 14 at the time, and her friends said, like, she really had her personality and she let it shine through. Like, she was ready for school, like, ready to immerse herself, like, and make new friends. But now we get to the question, which group is she going to fit into in this school? She did not fit the preppy, like the cheerleader type, so goth girl group was a bit more fitting for her. The group of misfits at this school. When Kelly Bullwinkle arrives at Redlands East Valley High, she's a bright, outgoing 14-year-old. She had her own personality, and she let it shine through. But she didn't fit the preppy cheerleader type. Kelly was very soulful. She was a deep thinker. She loved to journal. She was an amazing writer. Kelly was kind of alone a lot because of her mother, single mother. She was in the Coast Guard. Kelly lived with her mom and her mom's friend, Laura. But Kelly would often have the house to herself. I think she wanted to be anybody's friend. When she first came to the school, she was kind of lost. When you come into a high school and you don't know anybody, you're literally drowning. There's a lot of anxiety. There were definitely girls that were exclusionary. When Kelly joined this high school, she was kind of a loner. Like, she was struggling with her identity, which I feel like people say that as if, like, oh, she was, like, introverted and all of that. I don't think it comes from that. I think it's more of she's used to living with her mom, who is spending most of the time on the ships. She's just trying to find her place at this school. She's in the new area, just new school, new everything. So, like, first impressions are important, and also who she's drawn to possibly means, like, establishing one friend group for the next couple of years. One such girl was a part of this goth girl group, and her name is Kinsey Nordman. Now, Kinsey was already part of a friendship of, like, three people. So it would be Kinsey, Elodie Romero, and Damien Guerrero. Now, this trio consisted of Damien and Elodie. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. Kinsey, who was a leader, and we're gonna speak a bit about Kinsey and, like, her activism right now, and then, now, newly joined Kelly. 
The episode that I watched described them as a band of misfits, with Kinsey being popular because of her confidence, because of how outspoken she was, Elodie kind of being the person with like the fashion sense and like being edgy, and then Damien being like a cool goth guy who like everybody was drawn to just because of like shit that would come out of his mouth. A bit more on Kinsey before everybody else, and why Kelly was so drawn to her. From what I got, both Damien and Kinsey were a year older, so they were kind of already like a year above Kelly when she joined school. So Kelly comes into the school with her hair bright red to match that of her idol Tori Amos. And it's just no surprise that obviously somebody else who considers themselves like to stand out would be drawn to her and would immediately want to become her friend. Kinsey would stand out for being a young activist who founded a gay and lesbian club at this high school and was also into animal rights. This gay and lesbian club was FLAG, Friends of Lesbians and Gays, and at lunchtime they would all be kind of hanging out in this information booth. Now, of course, as I mentioned, like, Redlands wasn't, like, the most liberal place. So, at first, when Kinsey founded this club, like, it kind of had, like, a lukewarm reception. It was, like, a few people joining. But it soon boasted about 30 members, including Kelly. Kinsey would be described by many people in this episode and just in articles as a leader. She always had something interesting to say. People looked up to her and respected her, her friends would say. Kinsey also was known for, like, staging different protests on campus sometimes, like, against eating meat, and would also go to Long Beach's gay pride parade. But in her junior year, Kelly makes a new friend, senior Kinsey Nordman. Known as a leader, Kinsey launched the school's Friends of Lesbians and Gays Club, also known as FLAG. She had a very, very good self-esteem. I am sure that there were probably a lot of kids that looked up to Kenzie because she started that club. Kenzie and Kelly were both known to me to be bisexual. I do think that maybe Kelly was drawn to Kenzie because it seemed as though Kenzie was more out about her sexuality. Completing this cool alterna click is junior Elodie Romero. She was kind of more quiet and maybe standoffish too. Kind of like maybe uh, cocky. I could see maybe some people would have thought that Elodie was maybe intimidating. Now, when you look at it on the surface, right? This seems like a great best friend to make. Like, it seems like a great person to join at this school. But Kinsey's home life, according to the LA Weekly article, shows that this girl had an incredibly dark side. Her childhood, from the looks of it, was actually totally fine. It would only be when she would reach this school and kind of, like, get into sophomore year that things started changing. So, she was an only child, meaning that when she was being brought up, she was showered with insane amounts of attention. Her dad, Bruce, was a UPS delivery man, and he was well-known in the community. He was actually well-known in the friendship group that Kinsey had as a child, because he taught them all how to surf. Her mom, Deborah, was dedicated to the role as a Girl Scout leader, so Kinsey, as a child, would often go 
and participate in like soccer, she would have passion for reading, she would take care of sick or stray animals. And this resulted in the family like realizing, okay, this kid like really loves animals. So their house, it was said at times, like resembled a zoo because of how insane amount of animals like Kinsey would bring from the street and then they would just adopt as pets and then they just had all of these pets in the house. And think this in the back of your head for later because this is the part that like pisses me off among so many things in this story. But from all of the accounts, Nurmets gave this child of theirs, gave Kinsey all of the love, like they showered her with birthday celebrations, Girl Scout outings, camping trips, like she had anything that she wanted. And from her childhood friend, from this period in her life, like, this girl had said nobody had anything negative to say about Kinsey. By the end of Kinsey's sophomore year, though, her relationship with her mom was completely changed. Like, it deteriorated to the point that Deborah actually started listening in on Kinsey's phone calls, which actually turned out to be a great fucking idea, because let me loop you in on one of Kinsey's great phone calls. So she's listening in, right? Her mom is, and Kinsey is having a phone call with her then boyfriend. And during this conversation, Deborah remembered the boyfriend saying, wouldn't it be cool if your mom got cancer and we could take away her medication so she could die? Kinsey agreed, saying like, oh yeah, that would be cool. And then her boyfriend said, wouldn't it be cool if your dad killed himself? And again, Kinsey was like, yeah, that would be fucking sick. The family was obviously freaked out. At, at this point, at this point, I put in my Google search, because the article I was reading wasn't giving me this information, in the Google machine, I put Kinsey Nordman therapist. And this article pops up. So the family took out a restraining order on this fucking guy who wants them both dead, right? Like, the parents took a restraining order against the boyfriend and then sent Kinsey to therapy. But Kinsey, after however many sessions, nobody really mentions, after receiving some therapy, was even more determined just to keep adding shock value to her life. She started dating a homeless guy, and this homeless guy was appealing to her because he liked wearing dresses. She also started dating a girl that she met, like, at school, at biology class. And this girl would later say, like, she kind of doubted whether or not Kinsey was bi or gay to begin with. All of the girls kind of really doubted. Like, this girlfriend said, I really think a lot of it was about getting that attention and pissing off her mom. And it kind of gets you thinking, right? Like, I don't know to what extent Kinsey was actually bi or gay or, like, how open she was with her sexuality, but, like, did she do all of the activism stuff and, like, everything in her life at this point for attention at school? Because it would get the people to notice her. Like, did she do the activism stuff protests, standing out for whatever reason, and then making sure that she is in friendship groups, again, that get her that popularity status, that get her that attention, just for the sake of it. Whether it is, yes, pissing off her mom, or just because she enjoyed it herself. Kinsey would also be the person in this friendship group to undergo the biggest change 
It was said that Kelly's style probably had undergone the least amount of changes, that her hair was already red when she joined the school, and she kind of just like took on more of a goth appearance because of the friendship group, like adding fishnet stockings, high-heeled boots. But Kinsey, meanwhile, went like 180. Her jeans and t-shirts were completely replaced with black tops, pants, and combat boots. She would actually be voted the most changed in their 2002 graduation, because they would graduate a year before Kelly, if you remember. To make their point, the students would compare the picture of Kinsey in seventh grade with a picture of her as a freshman. They said she went from a surfer chick to a goth. She wore conga shells and was going out with a guy in track. A few months later, she looked like something out of the crow. It was a big turnaround. Let me now introduce you to a possible catalyst for this change, a man named Damien. Damien would be described, I need to read this out for you, like, word by word, as a dark and handsome guy with a geeky disposition who quoted philosophers and liked Quentin Tarantino movies. This is not a guy that you would take a glimpse at and be like, oh yeah, that's one of the geek guys, like, that's one of the nerds. No. So, you see this man and you know that that is not somebody that you want anything to do with. Uh, here are some quotes from the women that went to school with him at the time. So, they said he was just that guy. Everyone knew who he was. He was just so full of himself. Another classmate said girls loved him. Having a conversation with him was one of the most enlightening things that had ever happened to me. He could turn anything into philosophy. Not so much the meaning of life, but the meanings of the meaning of life. I'm gonna play the video on Damien, okay? Because they introduced this man in this Mean Girl Murders episode. Like, he's Nate Jacobs running that school, Euphoria High. He's running it. He is the shit. Well, this is just some random goth kid desperately trying to get laid. Like, he would get laid with anybody offering. It's just the way that the mismatch of, like, how they introduced him to, like, who he probably actually was and all of these securities is something else. And there's one guy in this girl group, senior Damien Guerrero. Damien was very much the goth aesthetic. Slick back hair. He kind of seemed, like, unapproachable. He would wear, like, black nail polish and, like, rings a lot. Just black clothes a lot. People like Damien because he's different. He's edgy. He's unlike everybody else. He was charismatic. Like, people were drawn to him. He would quote philosophy. He would make himself sound highly intelligent. That was definitely Damien's personality. Um, he was very much into, like, the Quentin Tarantino movies and, you know, the, the natural born killers. And he had this smugness to him, like, you know, he was, the humans were scum and, you know, maybe he was better than that. Damien was dating Ellie. They were, like, I guess you could say the cute little golf couple. The two are on again, off again. The relationship has its share of high school drama. The next line in my script is Damien was not member of FLAG, friends of gays and lesbians. Mm -mm. Who, who is shocked? Has your jaw dropped to the floor? No. Of course, of course not. Or any other group in high school. However, he was still considered a good student. He actually graduated in 2002 with a 3.23 GPA, which I googled it. 
it is decent. From what I've seen, it's pretty freaking decent. So, like, he was smart. I still wouldn't consider that to be, like, geeky behavior, but smart enough, right? In their high school yearbook, Kinsey and Damien borrowed quotes, of course they did, from Nine Inch Nails, which is the rock band, and then 18th century writer Samuel Johnson. So, Kinsey put the quotes from the rock band from their song The Becoming. The me that you know, he had some second thoughts. He's covered with scabs, his is broken and sore. The me that you know, he doesn't come around much. That part of me isn't there anymore. Under Damien's picture, there was the philosopher's quote. He who makes a beast of himself loses the pain of being a man. So edgy, so cool. We have a cool guy alert, guys. We have a cool guy alert. Oh, God. I'm already exhausted by this man. Already exhausted. Damien was also known, oh my god, this part, for collecting knives. He collected knives, he collected, like, swords, he collected small blades, right? His newest hobby before graduating was piercing. He recently pierced his friend's ears. I beg of you. I beg of you, like, do not let... This isn't even, like, big sister advice. Just do not let any guy in high school pierce your ears. What the fuck are you doing? Like, it's too close to the jugular. Like, they might just as well go for it. Especially if they're, like... Look like they're already dark. If they're a philosopher type, don't let them freaking pierce your ears. How do you trust people like this? Don't trust anybody ever. The way that Kinsey changed a lot, right, in this story, the person undergoing the least amount of changes, again, no surprise, no shocker, say the name with me, was Damien. Yeah. He still lived in a two-story house of an upper-class suburb next to Redlands that he shared with his mom, his brother, and his stepdad. His dad is a firefighter for the city of LA and lives in a small town near Temecula. Say it with me, Lisa from Temecula is still the undefeated SNL sketch. It's hilarious all the way through. I have not laughed like this over an SNL sketch in a long, long time. Go watch it after this video, okay? His interest in golf culture and its dark clothing and music started in the freshman year and stayed, like, pretty much remained all the way up until Kelly's murder. He topped it all off with black t-shirts, black pants, he was like very much all black everything guy, and then would put white contact lenses in because he's fucking deep, deep shit. Like his idol, Marilyn Manson, which of course like he listened to Manson at all times. I had to check, I had to double check, I'm not gonna lie, because they say like, oh, he listened to Manson music, and at first I thought Charlie Manson, because it's very much giving culty vibes from this point on, so, nope, it was, it was Marilyn Manson. He'd make sure to be center of attention with the fellow goths at the back of the school, and this is pretty much, like, giving him the entry point, like, because at this point it would be, like, where all of the preppies, all of the jocks, like, all of the freshmen would come, and then, like, he would do this in order to be noticed, in order for other people to approach him and, like, so he can share his theories and deep meanings of life. Outside of school, he was pretty much of a loner. Like, he would spend his time with his best friend, Kinsey, his girlfriend, Elodie, and his friend called Taco Dan. This is just... Teenagers should not be allowed to give nicknames to anybody because sometimes they stick, okay? I have given so many nicknames to other people that just stuck. And they're disgusting. They're like, you cannot trust the choices of teenagers. He would, with Kinsey, listen to Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails, and Tool, like all of different bands. 
and would watch films like Reservoir Dogs, A Clockwork Orange, and their favorite, Kinsey and Damien's favorite, was Natural Born Killers. About this friendship between Kinsey and Damien, people would say, like most of this golf group, Kinsey idolized him. Somebody's quote, right? The Kinsey's girlfriend's quote at the time. I could tell when he came up to us at school, she would stop her discussion and focus on him. She kind of idolized him. He was the exception to almost everything. She would rule everyone else, but when he said something, she would follow him. It is some culty shit. Uh, Damien here is very much giving Weekend's character on the idol. He's very much Tedros here. So we have to talk about this friendship because this is when we get into the dynamics of things in order to understand how anything happened. And this friendship is fucking weird. Under Damien's influence, Kinsey changed from this like athletic girl who is into surfing, you know, like her dad taught her how to surf, into somebody who had dreams of becoming a vampire. Mm. She started writing papers about serial killers and listened to dark, dark music, right? Her favorite band became whatever his favorite band was at the time. Her favorite movie became whatever Damien's favorite movie was, logically so. There is this picture of the two of them that gives me the fucking creeps. I'm not sure if there's like double exposure going on, like why? What's going on with this picture? Why are their faces twisted like this? But it just scares me. Just frankly, it's, it's a scary fucking picture. Damien and Kinsey became close, and by December 2002, this bond between them strengthens. The murder, just for reference, happens in September of 2003. So this is now, in the timeline, nine months before the murder. At this point, Kinsey and Damien have a very deep connection. In, if anything, it's just about to deepen even further. They consider each other to be soulmates. So for Christmas 2002, Kinsey would buy Damien the matching snake rings that Juliette Lewis's character gave Woody Harrelson's character in their favorite movie, Natural Born Killers. Kinsey was so obsessed with this movie, right, that she had a poster of it in her room and even named her parrot and her rabbit Mickey and Mallory, which were the names of the characters of the protagonists in the movie. So I looked up this movie, right, and I will play you this scene of the exchange of the rings. It is a 1994 movie and it follows the story of a young couple Emphasis on couple, who embark on a murderous rampage, emphasis on murderous, across the United States. Let me play this weird scene, because it's, like, supposed to be a fake wedding scene, because, of course, they're literally, like, escaping the authorities or whatever, and they're at this bridge, and they exchange the rings and also, like, cut each other's hands, sort of, like, exchanging the blood and all. And it's just, um... It's something. It's something. Let me just play it if you have never watched the movie. Now. Ah. 
for you and this river, this mountain, and everything we don't know about. Mickey, do you take Mallory to be your lawful wedded wife to have and hold and treat right until you die? Dude. The court documents is going to describe Kinsey and Damien's relationship in this way. That they both worked at Damien's mother's real estate business and were soulmates and best friends. They both liked and frequently watched the movie Natural Born Killers, they memorized the lines from it and wore snake rings like the rings worn by the main characters who were serial killers. How they saw themselves, though, of course, is above this. It's like, the world was just not ready for them, guys. They were super fucking human. This is from Kinsey's diary, okay? Kinsey would write things like, There is only one person in this whole world who knows who I truly am. <laughs> Sorry, that glee scene, and I'll see you, Sylvester. Oh, it's so funny. Okay, play the scene. <clears throat> That's the problem with your generation. You're obsessed with labels. So you like show tunes. Doesn't mean you're gay. It just means you're awful. You know, there's only one person in this world who can tell you what you are. Me. Now, me, Sue Sylvester. Let's try this again with a serious face. There is only one person in this whole world who knows who I truly am. The rest only know who I pretend to be. According to Kinsey's diary, like, really trying to preface that this is still from Kinsey's diary. For his part, Damien would say things like, there is no word for what Kinsey and I are. When mankind is more... Dude, I just need to compose myself. When mankind is more evolved, say, a hundred years from now, everyone will have a relationship like we do. Even without the context of romance, right? This is just so bizarre to me because Kinsey's role in this case is like being Kelly's best friend, but also potentially somebody into Damien or at least seeing them as like having this really, really close bond, like idolizing the shit out of this guy, or like into this idea that the two of them might live out the natural born killers, like which like Bonnie and Clyde lifestyle in real life. Why is there an exchange of rings? It's like, a bizarre part to me, I'm like, I understand you're obsessed with this movie, but, like, you are not a couple on a murderous rampage. Are you doing everything for shock value? Is everything being done for some form of attention? I want to know your opinion on them now, at this point in the story, versus towards the end. Like, did it change? What do you think is going on here? Why is this woman idolizing the shit out of a random teenager? And why are they doing it all for attention, basically? Rumors would start that Damien was a dick, is my next line in the script. Who is surprised? Like, it was no secret that Damien was arrogant. Like, he was that guy who wanted to be approached, who wanted to be asked for opinions and meanings in life and all of the depth 
and like deep sentiments about anything. But several girls were attracted to that, and Elodie was one of them. She was Damien's girlfriend, and they had been dating at this point in our timeline for about two years. They were kind of known to be on and off. It was known that Damien would sometimes cheat on his girlfriend, like, and then would kind of, you know, be that cheater that would cry, like, make a scene and come back and be like, you're the only one I love, you're the only one I love, and then would go and cheat again. That son of a bitch. Another rumor that started circulating, though, was that Kelly was one of the women that crushed over Damien. And it was kind of known, like, Elodie and Kelly did not like each other, because Elodie always kind of suspected, like, oh, she's, like, majorly crushing over this guy, wants to be in his presence at all times. And when all of them would be together, Damien was a dick. Like, he was the type of guy who is, like, a major dickhead when everybody was around, he always had an attitude and stuff, but was a completely different person when he was just with Kelly, when they would, like, spend any time, like, just the two of them, he was, like, super, super nice and sweet to her. Damien knew that Kelly liked him. It was very obvious to everybody. Damien knew, like, the power that he had over the girls, like, that he knew when somebody was crushing on him, but he never had intentions of ending his relationship with Elodie. The dynamic at this point in time is that Kelly, without Damien in the picture, speaks her mind. She's not under his spell the way that Kinsey is, but then, because of her crush on this guy, he's a driving force behind what she does. So there is still, like, a very wholesome side to Kelly. She still was engaging in writing, she was getting, like, these awards for her essays that she would write for school, she's still very much focused on, like, following her dream and, like, getting a college degree and all of that. Even, like, when she wasn't writing, like, working, going to school, Kelly would still go and ride her horse or would hang out with Kinsey and Damien. Now, Thursday nights, like, the way that this worked, they would all go to the market night, which is kind of, like, it's just a food market. It's equivalent of LA's Olvera Street. They would make plans to, like, meet up afterwards, and most of these plans and, like, how their friendship had worked now, because um, Kinsey and Damien already graduated, right? Kelly is the only one in the school. They are agreeing to meet up over AOL. I was personally not of the AOL generation. I was of the MSN and, like, MySpace things, but you have screen names, you have handles, okay? Kelly's AOL screen name were Sage Pony and London Horse. Damien's were Necromaniac and Under Two Tracks 4. The article doesn't mention Kinsey's handle I put in the script, maybe because she would be summoned by the devil himself. Spring and summer of 2003, people might have had their suspicions on something actually happening beyond just a crush between Kelly and Damien, and the story makes me think how much of it she actually shared with anybody, but especially Kinsey at this point, is still one of her best friends. Why I'm saying this is because there's another layer here, and that is of Kelly possibly being somewhat jealous of Kinsey, or rather Kinsey's love life at this point in time. Because while Kelly and Damien kind of kept with whatever was going on between them, we'll speak about it in a second, on the low ski, right? Like, they kept it on the low, like Caesar's song. 
Kinsey's love life was an open book. Like, everybody knew everything this girl got up to, right? They knew about the split from her ex, that she was dating that homeless kid who loved to wear dresses, that she dated a woman. And everybody knew that at this point in time, she was dating a guy called Peter Kowalski, who was the former classmate of hers, and they had been dating for about two years. So, this is going to be a guy that will become relevant later, because she will place a call that will prove to be critical in the murder investigation. But her lifeline seemed to be stable. There was no secrets, like, she would get anybody that she wanted, and then would get into, like, a stable relationship. So, she seems to be in a stable place, stable relationship, rather. Damien is dating Elodie for about two years, and that brings us to the couple of months that were full of conflict, of summer of 2003. That brings us to the prom night, right? The prom night for Kelly, because her friends had already graduated a year before. For her prom, Kelly, who is yet to turn 18, she will turn 18 just that summer, so she decides to bring Kinsey along. And this was seen, depending on who you ask, as, like, weird or, again, like, another thing that the two of them would do for shock value, especially that Kinsey wanted to do for shock value, because in Bradlands, well, it's not super common for two women to come together for a prom night. So, even when the two of them started kissing each other on the dance floor, that was all in just good fun. They kind of say, like, in the series, that the two of them making out, just like we presented the declaration of purpose and independence for the two girls. Their appearance together, however, would also be seen by some, but like, some people as, again, like, the way that Flag was, the way that Kinsey's activism was, as a start of something positive. But instead, it would be the beginning of an end. Even after Kinsey and Damien graduate in 2002 and move on to local community colleges, the goth group remains tight. And when it comes time for Kelly's senior prom the following spring, she brings Kinsey as her date. Kelly did like to dress up a lot, you know, and that prom was a perfect occasion to uh, wear something fun. Kelly and Kinsey went together and they had a fun time making out on the dance floor, but it was probably just for shock value or to be different. Kelly and Kenzie, they weren't a couple, but I always knew them to be best friends, really close. Most would just write it off as the two girls being shocking, doing everything for the shock value, and this next thing is kind of very much included in that plot. So, Kinsey and Kelly started saying to everybody, like, they're about to get high in the toilets, like, at the prom, they're about to get high on meth and cocaine. And we're just doing, like, going to shoot up some heroin in the bathroom as well. This is when drugs get in the picture. Well, rather, we don't know exactly at what point drugs get in the picture. This is sort of like the first mention of drugs in my research, right? Because from everything online, I think all of these kids would partake. It would just be the levels, right? Like, were all of them just stoners, or did they use any of the hard drugs? And it also depended very much of who is telling you the story. 
most of the stories of what drugs they used will come later, after Kelly's death, and the stories will come from Kinsey. So take them with a grain of salt, because the drug use here will portray Kelly in probably the worst light out of everybody. And if everybody partook, I'm just kind of wondering, like, why is nobody else portrayed in a very bad light? Why is it just Kelly? Other people who were at the prom night would say Damien was there. He was there when two of his friends were making out on the dance floor. He was there for the part where they invited him to do drugs in the toilet. A bit more on that, right? But like, so like, yeah, he was happily taking in the scene, was there with his girlfriend, and everything seemed to be like positive, at least again from the outside. Like, they all seem to have stuff to look forward to. Then there was another friend who, as Kinsey is out there chatting with Damien and like getting a drink, Kelly confided in. And Kelly apparently said, I need new friends. I'm tired of these people who don't even care about me. The reason behind this, well, the friend would seem like to think like Kelly was feeling low, that she might be depressed and stuff, but the reason might have been that Kinsey and Kelly were angry at Damien because he was refusing to do drugs with them. Maybe, in hindsight, like some friends say, Jealousy was the issue, that it was Elodie who was forbidding Damien to use cocaine and meth and, like, any drugs that they would be doing in the toilet. And that the three of the girls kind of started arguing, Kelly, Elodie, and Kinsey. That Damien tried to defend Elodie. And all of a sudden, Elodie turned on Kelly, calling Kelly a poser. Kelly called Elodie a bitch. People said, like, the fight continued online. I only had, like, one sentence of what was posted that Elodie wrote Kelly on June the 1st, posting a note on Kelly's live journal. Apparently, I think, like, it was, like, a blog that was online posting, like, a comment. So Elodie said, just stop living in your own little fantasy. The argument could be the culmination of Kelly hating that she is stuck in this love triangle and wanting Damien for herself. Kelly would go on to graduate high school two weeks after prom and enroll at Crafton Hills College, and during the summer she will start working part-time at a local fast-food restaurant called Baker's Drive-Thru. Now, during that summer, Kelly would also secretly start to see Damien. It seemed like this was the first boy that Kelly really was drawn to, had a really huge crush on, and she fell hard. There are parts of her diary where she speaks about, like, possibly, you know, losing her virginity to him. Even from the diary entries, you can see that she had doubts. She put, he makes me feel safe when I'm with him, but I have to keep in mind that it's not real, because one, he's a guy, and he couldn't care less, and two, I'm nothing to him. According to people, Elodie and Damien broke up and got back together all of the time. So it could seem like this is a pattern of behavior for Damien, where he can't really show that he cares for anybody, because he doesn't. It would be a whole cycle, right? Damien would cheat, Elodie would find out, the couple would fight, and then after a certain period of crying on Damien's side, right, Elodie is gonna take him back. Then, however, the part of the dynamic that I did not speak on, Elodie would seek revenge. Rather, she would start spreading rumors about or threatening the girls who 
there to quote-unquote steal her boyfriend who he was cheating on them with. Now here we get the first glimpse of how Kinsey fit in because instead of her being a supportive friend to Kelly in this situation, Damien seemed to be stringing Kelly along and Kinsey would join in. They were just mean and like bullying this girl for no fucking reason. Like for example, Kinsey and Damien would think like it's super fucking funny to invite Kelly to hang out with them. And then when she would get there, they would say like, oh, why are you here? Nobody wants you here. And Kenzie would like laugh whenever Kelly would get upset over that. It would seem like Kinsey was the instigator in this case. She would be like, oh my god, you know what would be so funny if we invite Kelly and then like bully the shit out of her. She was always telling Kelly just how good or bad Damien and Elodie's relationship was just to make her sad rather than to make her feel better about themselves. It wasn't like, oh my god, like it's a rocky relationship, like they will definitely break up and you will end with Damien. It was more of the opposite of like, they're doing so well, like why are you having delusions about this? It was just like very, very unhealthy. And people have said like, it kind of seemed like Kinsey was getting something out of it, like it was fun for her to do. Remember now how there was a mention of drugs at the prom night, right? So during the summer, the friends were fighting more often as well. And in July, they had a fight that lasted for four days. And this is said to have been because Kinsey's parents discovered that she's using drugs. So Kinsey decides to stop, or rather probably her parents decided it for her, let's be honest. And this upset Kelly. Damien... Again, like another supportive fucking character here, didn't believe that Kinsey would actually quit. So all three of them are like fighting about the issue of drugs and like quitting drugs almost daily. Kinsey thought if she stopped drugs, well, Damien is gonna stop being friends with her. She's going to lose her friends. But the root of the drama would still be Kelly's fixation, let's call it that, on Damien. He was still with Elodie and he told Kelly that the fling that they had had for a couple of months was over. But Kelly didn't want to let go. She said like she wanted him to see that Elodie is a lying little bitch and how crappy and sad and pathetic their relationship is. This would be like from the email that she would write to the friend at the time. And in her online diary, she called Elodie a whore. She had some angst over it because she seemed like a conscientious person. Damien continued to keep contact with Kelly as long as it was one-on-one. But when they're in public or groups of friends, it was the opposite. He made it a point to be mean, to show that he had disdain for Kelly. It was kind of like an abusive relationship where he would be mean and hurtful and abusive verbally. And then he would send her a message back and in a second she would think everything was fine. But when you're a teenage girl and you're in love and and you have all these emotions and all these hormones, um, nothing matters. Because of how her friends are treating her, Kelly is also ready at this point to meet new friends. So she starts the job at the fast food restaurant, right, at Baker's, and it was said she made a new friend called Cassandra, I think Cassandra in the back of your head as well, and 
these work friends, it is said in this episode, and I haven't read it anywhere else, but the episode says like, oh, they set her up like on a date, and this guy would have been a great match for Kelly. Now, the night that she was supposed to meet this guy, the friends will pop up at work, like, sort of to see, like, oh, is Kelly there? And the guy would be there, but Kelly's car would already be gone. We have to go back into a timeline here, because this is where we have the most information on. Because I wish that Kelly, right, drifted apart from these guys. She would have gone to college in September. She would have made new friends. That is the part that is so, so painting. Like, if these friends of hers, you can't really even call them that, right? If these guys, like, just let the grip, like, just let this woman thrive. Let her have her part-time job. Let her have her friends. Eventually, eventually, she would have stopped having a crush on Damien. She would have stopped being drawn to Kinsey if they just, like, ignored her. Because there were clear drifts, obvious drifts in this friendship here. Clearly, this summer, all they had were arguments. If they just let her go, make other friends, thrive elsewhere, but this is not going to be the case. And that brings us to 10 days before Kelly's murder. The belief here, right, is Kelly and Damien had a short fling for a couple of months. It's Damien's pattern. He cheats on her girlfriend. He cheats on his girlfriend, Elodie. And Elodie starts being suspicious about this. And she's kind of suspicious, like, okay, hey, like, it seems like, hey, he's not breaking up with me. He's returned with me. But, like, are they still seeing each other? And after all, like, this is Damien's pattern, right? He cheated on this girl so many times, she knew something was up. So, in this plan to figure out just what is going on, Elodie starts instant messaging Kelly on September the 2nd, 2003. This is where we learn actually exactly what was going on between her and Damien. So, Kelly asks her what she wants to know, and Elodie says, like, I just want to know what was going on, like, I'm not going to use it against you. Kelly wrote that her and Damien were off and on since April that year, and they had spoken just two days earlier. Elodie says, about? Question mark. Kelly says he said he wanted to have a one-last-time-together thing, but I told him no. Elodie asks how far did they go, and Kelly is kind of, like, reluctant to share that information. She says it was only just going down on him a couple of times, she apologizes, and Elodie doesn't reply. So, Kelly says, so what now? Did he tell you all of that? Elodie, talk to me. Elodie responds two days after. I know that you like Damien, you want him, and you want us to break up, but it's not going to happen, so just back off. I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to you. Bye-bye now. And, like, girl, I noticed that bye-bye spelling. I, I see what you try to do there. It is said that shortly after this, Damien would reach out to Kelly and would break it off. Like, as in one final time, because fuck knows how many times he would say, like, oh, yeah, this isn't anything serious, right? So, she received one last instant message from Damien that said, you need to stop being in love with me. For the good of everyone, you need to stop, because that is how it works. When you tell somebody, like, you need to stop, like, you need to stop being angry. Just imagine how that works. Yeah, you need to stop being in love with me. It works immediately, immediate effect. Uh, why, why isn't he, like, curing cancer out there with this great speech, like, great fucking speech that he has? 
He didn't think it was a good idea to hang out with her, yet, like, these days are murky, between the 2nd and the 10th of September. It's kind of murky, like, what was still going on in terms of, like, online. There's one account that said they still, like, proceeded to have a public argument at Denny's, and that Damien was, yet again, making sure that Kelly knows that he is back with his girlfriend. And Kelly was upset, and, like, there was kind of, like, you know, voices were raised, let's just say that, and Kelly left Danny's with friends, like, it was just getting messy. And this is where, like, I am glad that I looked into depth, because, like, without the dynamics of these friendships, you would truly be lost. And I mean, even at this point, you still probably think, I mean, like, I'm shitting on Kinsey and Damien, like, it's no... <laughs> Like, it's my fucking job. But you might still think, like, that this is a story about a love triangle. And that one person kills the other for this Mr. Nobody, for Damien. But technically, is that what happens? Like, I'm... Like, at this point, I still thought, like, oh, like, the murder might be different. Maybe I'm misreading what is going on here. But then, three days before the murder, Instead of helping her friend through this rough patch, like, going through this breakup, next blow to Kelly comes from her best friend, Kinsey. She told Kelly, like, okay, she's finally, yes, quitting the drugs again, and as part of that conversation, they start arguing, but it was more, like, towards Kinsey actually being in a stable relationship and having a boyfriend. Kelly started saying, like, look, here is how I see the way that you treat me. You act like you are this work of God's hands. You use me to make yourself look better than me. You always rub it in my face that you have a boyfriend and I don't. You go off and call me dumb. And Kinsey replied, I'm sorry if that's how you see me. I'll try to be more considerate. Thank you for staying with me. Do you want to hang out on Saturday? Saturday will be September the 13th. So, one last final reminder of the dynamic before we go into the night before and the day of the murder. Kinsey was Damien's soulmate, right? Elodie and Damien, however, were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time of the murder and had been on and off for about two years. Kelly had also had somewhat of a physical relationship with Damien for a couple of months, but now this is in the past, they had been broken up with, and Damien had gone back to Elodie. Kelly, however, still felt something for Damien and was persistently contacting him. She seemed to have still been in this cycle of, like, trying to get Damien to acknowledge her. Elodie told Kelly to leave him alone and confronted Damien about Kelly. He admitted that he had a relationship with Kelly, so, like, he wasn't lying in the end as well. But now, him and Elodie are, like, back together. And in September of this year, of 2003, Damien told Kelly to leave him alone, which made Kelly very upset. Kinsey seems to be siding with her soulmate, with Damien, and is very much solid in Kinsey, but still seemingly willing to be friends with Kelly. The night before, on Friday, September the 12th, the day before she disappeared, Kelly would have a couple of encounters. So, like, she um, met, like, I think, like, it was just, like, on the street, 
or rather at the library. She met her high school friend and they just spent like a couple of minutes chatting. They talked about like the raves and like doing drugs according to this friend of hers, right? The friend said how she didn't do coke yet and Kelly said she did like and you know like if she gets some like she'll call her, she'll eventually like ring her and they can meet up and do drugs together. There will be another college friend that Kelly would meet that day and this guy would later tell the police that Kelly seemed to be pissed off and like just wanted to like vent. It seemed like she just wanted to release this information upon somebody and what she was venting about was losing $100 on a drug deal because her co-worker, remember Cassandra, she um, basically screwed her over. We don't know about much detail, like we don't know about this in much detail at this point, but pin this last bit in your head, it kind of becomes somewhat relevant later. That evening, Kelly would actually have a house party. Her mom is on a cruise ship, so like she has a house to herself, and the friend is living with them at the point, Laura. She's also like visiting some family members. So Kelly invites about 10 people to her house. Some people that attended this party said like it was mellow and like Kelly seemed happy. By mellow, I think they just mean like they were getting high. As in, so they were just like smoking some weed. That same night, Damien was with his girlfriend. They ate actually at the Baker's restaurant. I'm not sure was it this franchise where um, Kelly worked at or not, but they had their usual meal and after Baker's they went to see Matchstick Man at the Cinema Star movie theater. According to the court documents, at some point that night Damien will also do something else. The night before Kelly's murder, Damien is going to meet up with his soulmate, Kinsey. They will drive to this isolated area of San Timoteo Canyon. Dig a hole, 76 inches long, 13 inches deep at one end and about 2 inches deep at the other. They would use a shovel from Kinsey's garage. And then they would just separate and go to their own homes. Possibly, we don't actually know the timeline here, possibly Damien did go after this excursion in the woods to actually have a dinner with um, his girlfriend and then they'll go and watch a movie. Saturday morning comes around and um, Diana, Kelly's mom, is still on the ship. They would exchange some emails during the Saturday morning, like before Kelly went to work. Now, Diana would actually send like some other emails that evening and the following morning, but she thought like, okay, Kelly's off, right? Like she's not responding. Now, Kelly actually wasn't supposed to work on this day, but she was called in because her co-worker was sick and it was said like Kelly was a very responsible worker. Like she thought, yeah, maybe this is a temporary gig, but like she worked hard. And to the point that like, because of how hard she was working taking up anybody's shifts, she even covered half of the cost of her recently purchased 1992 Mazda Protégé, so a car with the money that she saved up from working at this burger joint. So she was there, she was the person that actually answers when you call her for a shift like early in the morning. And her shift is supposed to finish around 4 p.m. And if you remember, her co-worker set her up on a date. So they appear, and it seems like Kelly might have had cold feet. They go off without knowing that Kelly actually made different 
plans because if you also recall a message from Kinsey was about the two of them meeting up that Saturday. So Kinsey and Kelly planned to go out for a hike after Kelly was to finish the work on Saturday. Unfortunately, Kelly didn't tell anything to her friends or her family, and I put why would she? She's just hanging out with her friend and then is probably going to go home. She goes and picks up Kinsey, and it is said, well, rather it is known because of how like, her body will be found, that she had like this tiny pouch of weed under her waistband, like of the Levi's, so that she and Kinsey would get stoned on this hike. According to Kinsey, they got high, they walked around for a while, but Damien never showed up. Now, this account of events makes me think like, it was just supposed to be Kinsey and Kelly. It was like, why the fuck would Damien show up in this situation where his fidelity, like, they're not technically friends, friends, like, right? He had broken up with Kelly. Well, they were never technically together, but you get what I mean. Like, the dynamic is just off. So, like, after about two hours, the girls decide to go and have something to eat. And just as they were leaving in Kelly's car, Damien pulls up in his own. So Kelly rolls down the window and asks him, like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he said, like, oh, I heard you guys will be hanging out, because of course Kinsey, right, would have told him in this case, because she's such a great friend. And I've never been here before. Like, I thought, like, I will come by and check this place out. So it is said, like, he convinced the girls to take another walk around this very, if you look at it at the map, very, very secluded area near San Timoteo Canyon, and him and Kinsey would then lead Kelly through the orange groves to the area that is known as the ghost town. It is a known spot for people to do drugs, to like just join, have a bonfire and party. And according to the local legend, it was once a site where satanic cults performed animal sacrifices. Kelly hated the place. Like, it was said, like, her friends would say, like, she was here before because, like, people coming there to party and that it scared the shit out of her. So the three of them drive back to this canyon place, they park their cars, they just hike about, and then they end up at the hole which Kinsey and Damien had dug the night before. Kelly is now standing in front of what would be her grave, looking down at a hole that had a shovel next to it. And what happened at this point is going to be wildly disputed in the court of law. Before we speak about what happened in the area known as the ghost town, our Kelly now has next two days off. She had just covered for somebody's shift, so she has like extra day off, right? And the colleagues are not alarmed until she doesn't show up for the next shift. And at that point, they see that she also hadn't been on AOL. She hadn't been online anywhere for 48 hours, which is when they realize, like, oh, something is really fucking wrong. Like, you know, which teenager is not just online catching up with everybody for two full days. Her housemate, like Laura, right, like the mom's friend, was also out of town for a few days. So when Laura returns, she immediately notices, like, newspapers have not been picked up. Pets have not been fed. Just <clears throat> need to tell you more on this. For this alone, these deserve a fucking life sentence, okay? 
she then goes in and listens to the messages left on the phone, right? And she hears the messages from the employers. She's like, fuck, okay, she hadn't called in to work. She also hears on the answering machine a message from Saturday and Sunday from Kinsey. So, like, after the murder, right? Her best friend is, like, being like, hey, you want to hang out? Like, we should, we should definitely hang out. It's just a normal fucking phone call that you're not answering. Okay, about the animals, right? Kelly uh, had a nine-year-old Australian shepherd called Blaze, four cats, and a goldfish. Her, the shepherd, the dog, had not received the twice-daily insulin shots. And, of course, like, Laura immediately knew, like, Kelly would never do something like this to her animals. You know who else would know that Kelly had pets? Her friend. Her friend who is apparently, like, super an animal lover, an activist, all of that bullshit, yeah. But I guess, like, if you don't care about human life, if you might take a human life, you really, like, don't care about animals at all. I don't know what I expected. Like, you know, if you murder a human, I don't think you care, like, about their pets having their insulin shots, do you? Now, everybody needs a person like Laura in their life, okay? This woman immediately picked up on what's going on. She's like, okay, I am wasting no time. I'm feeding the pets. I'm contacting the boss, okay? She did not actually appear at work. Cool. I'm going the mom on the ship so that the mom knows how to return. And then I'm fucking right off to the police station, which is exactly what she does. When she goes to report Kelly missing, she actually told the officer that Kelly was hanging around with her friends and that recently this friendship group seemed to have been using cocaine and other drugs, so that it was something that was kind of known, but nobody knew really to what extent. Laura also said, like, she believed that Kelly threw a party based off of, like, the state of the house the night before, and also that possibly she had depression, like, depressive episodes where she wasn't, like, happy where she was at some point, like, at this point in her life, right? Like, based off of how she was talking. And under the category mental condition, this police officer then taking this statement put depressed. You know, the good old times when the police would determine your mental illness. Now, this depression was based off of literally, like, Kelly, I don't think had been, like, seen. I don't think that this was diagnosed by anybody. It was just based on how she was talking about being miserable because of her friendship group, right? Like, that's the only thing that people are basing this off. However, at this point, the police is thinking, like, okay, what if she did? Like, not run away, rather than not seeing it as a runaway case, but what if she did go somewhere to possibly take her own life? The police still don't look into this, which is a good part in this story. Like, they don't discard it as a runaway case, and they look into locating her car. So they will find Kelly's hard-earned car abandoned at the Ontario Mills parking lot. There's no blood or anything there. So at this point, they're thinking, like, she might have been kidnapped. And the car being found confirms a few things for the police. The car was found on Monday morning. So, like, as soon as Laura returned home, literally, like, September the 15th. And it was towed at this parking lot because it wasn't ticketed, right? It was ticketed, rather. It was ticketed on Saturday and then Sunday. Later, Kinsey's fingerprints were found on the cigarette case in the car, and Kinsey's and Kelly's DNA were found on the car steering wheel. 
but while the police is like collecting DNA, they're collecting fingerprints, all of that, on September the 17th, the sheriff goes to Kelly's home to like investigate, to look into this missing person's report to gather more intel. Guess who is at Kelly's house? Her best friend, Kinsey, of course, with a ton of information and a ton of speculation. She says she was, she like immediately shakes this man's hand, is like, yeah, I'm the best friend, no, like, deal, like, please, I'm, I'm super worried about this, right? She also tells this detective that yes, they did use a lot of drugs, cocaine and meth, actually. They bought the drugs for, from somebody at Baker's, and um, she also told the detective, like this girl, she told the detective to contact Kelly's dad, because the dad actually sold them drugs in the past, and the drugs were then used by her and Kelly. I have only read this in one article, right? But, like, the way that this girl is, like, telling different stories to different people, but also accusing another family member is something else. It's something else, because she would tell her boyfriend at the time, right, Peter Kowalski, a story that on the day that Kelly disappeared, quote-unquote, she received a call from Kelly who asked her to take her car to the Ontario Mills Mall and drop it off. She did, in fact, drive Kelly's car to the mall where Damien would pick her up then. But this was in different context, but I feel like she was doing this in order to cover her own tracks because she probably, I don't know how far along any of these kids fought this through, but she knew, like, oh, that my fingerprints inside of her car can be explained, right? As opposed to his, or, like, anybody else's. Like, if, you know, somebody finds fingerprints, well, yeah, we are friends, we are best friends, I'm in her car all the fucking time. But then she told the police the other story. So, Kinsey is going to start telling them um, that she had plans with Kelly and sort of, like, started becoming concerned, right? Like, this is why there are all of these messages on the answering machine. She wasn't picking up any of my calls. She told them she was concerned, so concerned, that she actually dragged the mutual friend of theirs along to drive by her home the next day. And she apparently did this again, and this guy confirmed the story because he didn't realize he was literally a red herring here. Which just, to me, it's the effort. It's always the effort. Like, trying to avoid being looked into by the police seems like so much effort. Like, just don't murder a person. Like, then you don't have to, like, think about leaving a message on an answering machine, covering up your trail. Like, just don't murder people. It's, like, very fucking simple. It's literally, like, one step against, like, a million steps that you have to take. Kelly's mom is not even in town, like, from her cruise. She's not even returned back. Kinsey is already pointing fingers at anybody but herself. She will fully blame two individuals, which, like, were shit individuals, let's be honest. But this girl started Karening from the get-go. She told the police of this encounter that she and Kelly had with the guys called Mike and Eric. And it seemed like they were trying to score some drugs earlier at Kinsey's home in Redlands. The story here is kind of boring. It's like they are trying to score uh, these drugs from these two men and they're getting creepy vibes. So they invite like another friend of theirs to sort of like be a bodyguard. And as soon as this friend appears, these two drug dealers, quote unquote, like just fuck off and leave them alone. The impression the police had, and obviously like looking at different leads, right, that they're getting right from 
who should be trusted, who should be Kelly's best friend, is like, what would have happened had the girls stayed with these two men? But Kenzie, in giving details of this story, is also, like, telling on herself, like, it's her job to do that. This is from the court documents, so I'm inclined to believe that it is true, and I have to read it out, because, like, if I heard my best friend speak this way about me, I would genuinely, I don't think I would even, like, cut them, I would throw hands. It would just be, like, throwing hands, right? Because during the police interview that Kinsey would have, she would tell them that she suspected Mike and Eric killed Kelly. She bought drugs from them a couple of times at Baker's, Kinsey did, and they had tried to get Kinsey and Kelly to buy drugs and sleep with them. Kinsey then said that it's possible that Kelly was killed by accident while she was high and did something stupid. Someone also might have accidentally killed her while trying to calm her down during one of her episodes when she became psychotic from drinking and taking drugs. It was also possible Elodie and her friend tried to scare Kelly and accidentally killed her. Just the wording here. Scare Kelly and accidentally killed her. Pin it. Pin it in the back of your head. They did not like Kelly. Mm. Kelly was obsessed with Damien and had tried to get back in his life. Damien, not guilty though. No, no, look at Elodie though. Kinsey had told Kelly to stop stalking Damien. Like, so, like, her friend is an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a stalker. Sick stuff. Kinsey further told the officer that she had planned to spend time with Kelly after Kelly got off work and then meet Damien after, but she cancelled her plans to see Kelly. She claimed she was not involved in Kelly's murder, she was actually Kelly's best friend. Which I just wonder how this came out. Like, imagine somebody being like, I am, I did, I'm not a murderer, I'm her best friend. Like, what a choice of words. Why are you choosing those words? It's like, you know when somebody like does something like it's like, I don't know, incestuous. It's like, no, I'm deaf. I have never slept with my mom. Like, why is the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Like, you're sounding like somebody who fucks your mom. It's, it's that type of thing. It's just, the choice of words is interesting and the choice of shitting on your best friend is also like super fucking fascinating instead of like doing literally anything else treating her as a potential victim because she's a missing person at this point in time and saying a couple of nice things about your friend. No, that's not what Kinsey does. So, this is when Cassandra steps in. And she comes in with a story. She tells the police on September the 17th that she was supplying Kelly with coke and that Mike, so one of the drug dealers, bragged that he robbed Kelly of a hundred dollars and later killed her. You and Mike uh, seem pretty tight. Kind of. Do you think he did it? He told me he did. Who would be with him? Could have been anybody. He knows a lot of people. Like I said, he's a compulsive liar. Yeah, he's able to convince people that he's some big old hard gangster that just gets away with all kinds of crimes and think if he did do it, he was trying to do it to kind of prove that, you know? But Mike, under questioning in another room, denies he has anything to do with Kelly's murder. He says he was just joking about killing her, and he has an alibi to back him up. Like any good investigation, the Redlands police detectives check their alibis. Where were you Saturday night, then? Saturday night, I was at home. Who was home with you? Me and my dad. Your dad, so your dad can 
Yeah. Confirm that for us, right? Mm -hmm. Eric, where were you Saturday night? Me? I was at uh, Sumter Terry's house, right there on Olive and Buena Vista. Both Eric and Mike have witnesses confirming they were with them the night Kelly was killed. If you remember the $100 story from earlier, like the day before, Kelly met up with like two people and there was a mention of $100, right? So the friend that saw Kelly on that day said that she told him she lost $100 as Cassandra's friend scooted her over. So like at this point, like what if this is how the story fits, right? If she owed some drug dealers money or if they stole the money and killed her like, to keep her quiet. They actually searched their house and from what I had seen, they found a bloodied white t-shirt and jeans. They obviously then sent everything like to be tested. And in both of the guys' homes, they found clippings of Kelly's disappearance and homicide, which is never later explained. Like these guys, as I will play the video like of Cassandra at the shoulder of one of them in the interrogation room, they were career criminals. Like from what I have seen, they were accused of theft, of sexual assault, but here they will very much just be falsely accused by Kinsey, who strikes me like a person who in this day and age would just falsely accuse a person of color. She's that person who like, if you were to, I don't know, rub her differently on the street, you to like elbow her to pass somewhere, she would be like, it was a black man and they did this horrible fucking thing to me. Like, fucking Karen. They also, while, while searching these uh, drug dealers' house, they searched Kelly's three-bedroom home. And this is interesting. I'm just gonna read it out because I think it's interesting what they did not find, right? They found two pocket knives, camel cigarettes, five unknown blue pills, one scalpel blade and blood stains on a white tank top, the source of which was to be determined. I couldn't find like what this was. They found a piece of paper with blood spatter and the words, everything always fails, but this won't. Set them all for yesterday and not so bad. Something that I did not seem to read here in this paragraph is that they found any hard drugs. So again, who do we trust when it comes to drugs? And was Kelly as hardcore of a drug addict as her best friend portrayed her to be? Police here believe that the two men, Eric and Mike, uh, were just talking for the sake of talking. That one of them was bragging that they possibly killed a girl in order to look tough. And both of them, however, had alibis and none of them could tell them where. If they killed a girl, where did they dispose of her? Like, they couldn't give them any further details on this crime. At this point in time, they still haven't discarded this too. And it was looking pretty bad for... Eric and Mike, but the investigation took a turn when somebody else walked into the police station. So Kinsey's cousin, called Scott, gave the police a statement that would change the course of the investigation completely. He said that sometime between last January and March, he saw a small silver gun in the glove compartment of Damien's car, the car that he would, yes, be driving on that night. The police then brought in Damien to check out why he had a gun and because obviously he is in this friendship group, so like he is just another person to interview, nothing to worry about here. 
When police questioned Damien, he admitted to owning a 25 caliber model pistol, like the exact same model, yes, that the cousin had seen, and he said, however, he dumped it. Mm, where did he dump it months earlier? In a storm drain near Center Street and Cypress Avenue. Like, gave in a precise location, so the police goes, check out this drain, they couldn't find a gun. And I don't think the gun was ever found in uh, this story, but just... <laughs> It's like the totally normal thing to say. Like, where do you think of disposing a gun in a storm drain? Why? Like, who the f- why? Why would you dispose of a gun in this- why not sell it? Make some money? No, you dispose it in a storm drain. Seems legit. He told the police that the reason behind this, him dropping a gun in a storm drain, <clears throat> he didn't like owning a gun and thought it was best to get rid of it. He said, I thought it was neat, then it became a pain in my ass because I didn't feel safe with it around. It was a worry for me. His brother was apparently the one who got him the gun. And the reasoning why his brother got Damien the gun was because he already um, had swords and, like, you know, knives and different stuff like that. So, like, a gun would be just, like, a nice addition to this man little sick collection. So, Damien's brother gets him a knife from a Yukaipa man called Josh for 70 quid, like 70 dollars right here. So it's a steal. So Damien starts in this conversation blaming this Yukaipa man, blaming this supplier, technically, the person that sold his brother the gun that was supposed to be his present. And at Kelly's memorial that, by the way, yes, these two will attend, so many things to start raging about, Damien would tell Kelly's close friend that a week before Kelly was murdered, his brother told him that this man told his brother, like this Yukaipa man, the supplier of the gun, told his brother that he wanted to kill Kelly. So thinking this is going to be helpful, this is going to lead the police to find Kelly, this is going to help with the investigation, this friend would share this information with the police. The police looks into the man that sold the Guerrero family, this gun. This guy is called Josh, right? They go to his house and they, luckily, I am happy that they did this because they recovered three shells in this man's backyard. Apparently, this is when, like, before buying the gun, um, Damien's brother and him tested it. So they tested everything works fine, like, yeah, it's gonna go into Damien's collection. So, the police picks up the shells of this gun, and this is something they can then compare to if they were ever to find a gun or bullets or different shells, right? This guy testified that also, as they were testing it, he said, like, the trigger had to be pulled each time the gun was fired, and it took a lot of pressure to pull the trigger. So he said, like, he never had a problem with the gun misfiring, but he clearly remembered. Now, this is where we tested it, this is that gun, you can, yes, pick up the shell casings. It was properly, like, cooperative with the police. Because of this, and because, yeah, now Damien is kind of giving them all of these false leads, they obviously go and search Damien's room. And this is where they would find bullets of the same type for that, like, 25 caliber gun, right? And, again, if they were to get anything at the murder site, potentially one day matching these bullets and then the shell casings from the guy who sold him the gun, the police here is to have a slam dunk. When Damien is brought into the police station, here we 
get his alibi, rather his and Kinsey's alibi. They asked him what he did on the night of September the 13th. Damien said he went to a movie with Kinsey that ended at 11 p.m. He dropped Kinsey off and then went to Elodie's. Him and Kinsey went to Ontario Mills Mall, ate a Saturday night dinner, and watched a Once Upon a Time in Mexico at the Redlands movie theater. He would have the receipts to prove this. Like, this is where, as a police officer, if a teenager was to just take the receipts out of his pocket and put them on the table, I'd be like, say no more, say no more. You will be closely followed because you're guilty as fuck. Like, which teenager keeps receipts? Like, what normal behavior, normal teenage behavior is this? It's not, it's not. So the natural-born killer's friendship starts to crack, which is the part that I enjoyed reading about the most here. Because the two of them started acting a bit odd with each other, which again, not the best thing to do when you're, you know, like really putting an effort into like avoiding the police. But Kinsey uh, blamed this dynamic on Elodie, of course. And Kinsey said like, oh, Elodie hated my guts. So like, it was kind of described like after this murder, the two of them were best friends one day and then bitchy the next. They were still like, this pressure was really taking a toll on them. As everybody now has an alibi, the police is looking at the lead that they have with a gun. They're like, okay, cool, if we find something, we're immediately matching that, like, we can have a slam dunk there. But also, they're searching Kelly's house, they collect the computer, like, that she had used, and they're looking now into digital evidence. And this is when Elodie becomes a suspect, because they find a conversation that she had had with Elodie, did I say, like, 10 days before? The murder right and then like Elodie responded a bit later and it seems like Elodie's response was threatening right she had said like yeah bye bye and said like leave my man alone or else investigators dive into the online life of both girls in this love triangle and see that by the summer the fight had become vicious Elodie would be hateful and hurtful to Kelly and Kelly would send emails bashing Elodie and Damien's relationship. Kelly could be a little catty. She wanted to prove that she was really the better match for Damien. Just stop living in your own little fantasy, Kelly writes on June 1st, posting the note on Kelly's live journal. Elodie wanted Kelly to come clean about the affair, what happened, and Kelly said, okay, fine, I will be honest. Kelly tells Elodie 10 days before she disappears that she and Damien have been seeing each other on and off since April. Elodie's reply was, this stops now. You know, you wouldn't want anything bad to happen. The police brings in Elodie for questioning and she explained everything to them and she was eventually ruled out by her alibi. This series states that, like, as, like, Elodie's interrogation room, I'm not going to play it because, again, like, she's not guilty of any of this, but literally just her choices that she had made in men at that point, so I don't want to, like, put her face or attach her face to really this case to begin with. But they say, like, oh, like, she had a very strong alibi, and her alibi was that she was with her mom, and I was like, okay, this police needs to, like, needs to start, like... <laughs> 
leveling up because I don't like, like what you mean it's a strong alley but she was with her mom like oh yeah they had receipts cool expose them for like the whole day don't look into these two so as the police is eliminating suspects by their strong fucking alibis on the 19th Diana returns from the ship and as soon as she does like distribution of missing persons profile stars Laura the legend the woman that lived with them had already like printed them they're literally like distributing them and by day I mean Kinsey is all over the fucking world it's, it's her time to shine it's her time to shine her best friend is missing she's there she's distributing she's making calls she's like helping out with the memorial she's doing the most this woman is doing the most which yes is technically what a best friend should do what possibly the best friend shouldn't do because kind of gives them away as a possible perpetrator here is just how open she was suddenly with the mom and like suggestive in terms of yes the suspects and everybody here but she literally would go to Kelly's mom and just tell her like oh yeah no Kelly was like properly on drugs mm -hmm. like she was using like these hard drugs we have been doing coke and meth um maybe like Kelly's gone off to her father because you know like he seems to have supplies of drugs we don't like who, like I don't know why she's accusing this man I don't know what the history there is but pits of hell this woman is literally lying to the mother of her close friend and would have undoubtedly continued lying up until the point that this case possibly turned cold if nobody was to have found the body or any further evidence this case could have turned cold. A few days after Kelly disappears, her mother arrives back home. Kenji just wanted to support Kelly's mom during the time she was missing. She went to go see Kelly's mom, Diana, and started a search party. Kenji was very active in the search. Asking everybody, did they find her yet? Did they find her yet? But luck would not be on Kinsey's or Damien's side. Because on October the 4th, two boys who were playing paintball in Santi Mateo Canyon discovered Kelly's decomposed body. They first noticed the foul smell and saw a decomposing leg that was just protruding underneath a couch, like, or what appeared to be like some piece of furniture to them. The rest of the body was covered with dirt, so the boys like immediately freaked the fuck out and they drive for miles to report this discovery to the police, because again, this is a very isolated spot. However, it is also the spot that is known for drug use and partying. Not the smartest choices, not the smartest choices that have been made here. The way that Kelly's body would be found was partially buried in a shallow grave. And she was still wearing the clothes that she went to work in. So they also found like that little weed patch that was stuck between her pants and underwear in the Ziploc baggie. They also discovered a ring, a broken cell phone, some writings, a green canvas bag, a shovel handle, cassette tapes, rubber and leather gloves, as well as a bullet casing from a 25 caliber pistol just near her right leg. Because these two were lazy as fuck. Ballistic tests would link bullet casings found at the scene to a gun that was once owned by Damien Guerrero. Three weeks after Kelly's disappearance, three teens are playing paintball in a wooded area called Ghost Town. That's where um, kids went to hang out, 
went to party, went to use drugs to basically get away. It's very hidden and um, not very open. So you, it's a place where you could probably go and um, do whatever there and it wouldn't be seen. They smelled something, they smelled terrible. And they looked over and saw a human foot sticking out. Apparently there was a shallow grave. A piece of furniture was rolled over her body to kind of conceal it. When police arrive, they determine that the victim is a young female. They discover a shovel and a 25 caliber bullet casing by her body. The relics police officers, they hadn't ID'd it, but at the time I had a, a deep sense that this might be Kelly. Sure enough, it ended up being Kelly Bullwinkle. The police will soon learn from her friends that Kelly hated this area, that she was there once before and that she was so terrified that she clung to the friend that she was with the entire time and literally made them stay for like 10 to 15 minutes. So what would Kelly be doing at a spot that she's terrified of with, if we are to trust the ballistics, if we are to trust the shell casings found on the scene, the boy that she had supposedly broken up with? A few days later, the San Bernardino County coroner ruled that Kelly died from a gunshot wound to the head. There were two gunshot wounds to Kelly's head. One was a graze that would go along the surface of Kelly's scalp, and this wound would not have been fatal. The other gunshot wound uh, was from a bullet that went through Kelly's brain causing her death in a matter of seconds, and this bullet entered through the back side of her skull as if the gun is pointing to her while she has her back turned to somebody. It would be the right side of her skull, and there was no exit wound. According to the pathologist, the fatal shot traveled from right to left, slightly forward, and downward, again, as if somebody's above her, like standing above her. And this wound would have rendered Kelly unconscious, incapable to move at all. Now, the graze wound traveled from below upward and was not life-threatening. It wouldn't have even knocked Kelly down. And this pathologist testified he was unable to determine which of the two shots was fired first, so the fatal or the non-fatal one. Investigators determined Kelly died September 13th, the day she disappeared. An autopsy was conducted. They were able to determine that she had been the victim of two apparent gunshots. One was a kind of a grazing wound to her head. The other appeared to be a very close-up bullet wound that was fatal. There is no evidence of a sexual assault. He said he couldn't determine which shot was fired first and which one was second, but said that a non-fatal shot would not have knocked Kelly down to the ground unless it was a reaction to just being startled and surprised. So that brings us back to the night of. 
to Kelly standing in front of a hole that ended up being her grave that her friends have dug up for her during the night before when she was having a house party. You see, it was all supposed to be a joke. Let me elaborate. Because according to Kinsey and Damien, when they got to the gravesite, right, they were high, they were just walking around, they got to this gravesite after waiting for Damien, or rather Kinsey knew that Damien is going to be there, they proceed to carry out what they call a joke. And the plan was that Damien is just going to pull out a gun, point it at Kelly, and then tell her they were going to kill her and bury her in the hole. So Kinsey and Damien would then like kind of turn around like once Kelly is scared, and this is the part that makes me sickening. They all kind of refer to Kelly and like how she usually acts when she's scared. The sides of her mouth would quiver like a six-year-old hiding under the covers. It's, it's kind of like adorable. So they just wanted that reaction and then as soon as she starts freaking out, Kinsey's gonna be like, oh my god, it's a joke. Like, it's funny. We're not going to pull the trigger or kill you, but it's a real gun and real bullets. So Kelly was supposed to turn around and they were going to tell her this, like, is not going to happen, it's just a joke, she was supposed to freak out, and that was supposed to be it. What came out later is that this was apparently a pattern of behavior by Kinsey. Mm -hmm. People started talking, people started talking. Remember her ex, um, the one that she had phone calls about, uh, like, possibly killing her mom and then, like, killing her dad as well. Yeah, that one. So when she was dating this ex, there would be a classmate of hers that went into their house, like, and the ex was still there. I think it was Raskinzi's house and this ex was there and the two of them locked this classmate in a closet and while she was begging them, to let her out, they just laughed outside of the door. This classmate said she was terrified because apparently the reason why Kinsey and her boyfriend at the time put her in the closet, it was for her to get over her fear of, I think it was bugs. So like they put bugs in the closet and then put bugs on this classmate's face and then like literally locked her into this closet again. Casket-like situation, grave-like situation. And this classmate said, like, Kinsey loved to see people freak out. It would give her the satisfaction. You know, like, the satisfaction that you get from bringing your best friend in the middle of nowhere to scare her with a gun, and you already have a pre-dug grave that you can't really explain, that was on the ready there. Yeah, that, that part of... That part of satisfaction. Like, I don't think anybody in this story understands the concept of a joke, but especially, especially not Kinsey. However... In this case, the gun accidentally fired. Yeah, Kelly was not reacting the way she was supposed to react, and the gun accidentally fired, shooting Kelly in the back of the head. Kelly falls to the ground, and apparently she's still moving, she's still alive. So, Kinsey claims she's panicking, and she tells Damien to shoot Kelly again, in order to put her out of her misery, but Damien couldn't do it. So Kinsey takes the gun and shoots Kelly in the head so Kelly would not suffer anymore, after which Kelly stops moving. And then Damien proceeds to put Kelly's body in the shallow grave, covers it with dirt, and then covers it with an abandoned couch. 
I have a transcript here as Kinsey would make the final confession with her mom present in the room. So Kinsey's mom, Deborah, who was there, like, just asking her, like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, why didn't you use the cell phone? Why didn't you call for help? Kinsey says to that there was poor reception in the canyon. So you shot her and put her out of her misery? Asked Deborah. Yeah. What were your plans? Asked Deborah. Kinsey said Damien thought that they would be able to get away with it. She wasn't so sure. So she also said like she um, didn't question why Damien shot her, that she was shocked and on autopilot. To which Deborah, as most of us, kind of like addresses the whole joke part of it, saying, I must be missing something. Kinsey responds, it's a generation gap. People do this all the time as a practical joke. So to get this gay, right, it's Kelly's fault for not realizing a gun pointed at her, the back of her head, is a joke, and then it's Kinsey's mom's fault for not understanding what the cool kids consider to be a joke. Yep, not at all the case of Kinsey's sense of humor being borderline psychopathic. Nope, nothing to do with that at all. We go back to our timeline, and we are at the point where they're creating the alibi, right? Like, after covering Kelly's body in this grave that they have dug up the night before, they're going to proceed with this. There was premeditation here. Just put that, like, always in the back of your head when it comes to this case. Um, they have covered her body with a couch, and then, obviously, they had to think of something to explain their actions and to have the receipts. So, this is what proceeds, right? Damien places Kelly into the shallow grave, and Kinsey gets the dirt on her with her hands and feet. They try their best, which, again, like, lazy motherfuckers, because, like, the way that Kelly's body was discovered was with her leg basically protruding from the grave and, like, the shell casings there. But they try their best, apparently, to smoothen the top of the grave, and this was done, like, with the shovel, and then to drag that couch in order, again, to make this scene inconspicuous, like, nobody was ever going to find Kelly's body. Kinsey then drove her dead best friend's car to the Ontario Mills Mall, abandons it there in the parking lot, and Damien picks her up. They both change clothes, they throw Kelly's car keys in a dumpster, go to Denny's, where Kinsey had... We, we know what they had in terms of food. Kinsey had a cheeseburger with a salad, Damien had French slam. They went to Dutch, which also pissed me off, like, why isn't he paying? Why isn't the man paying in this situation? Fuck your soulmate friendship. They even had a time to take, like, basically, tickets to this movie. A 920 screening of Once Upon a Time in Mexico at the Gregorian Theatres. That evening, then, Damien proceeds to go to Elodie's house, because, of course, life must go on. He can't seem suspicious that he found he needs to go to his girlfriend. He stays there up until about 2 a.m., which would be the Elodie's curfew. The next day, they would go and eat at McDonald's again, eat, like, some fast food, they would drive to Six Flags, and they decide, like, not to go in, but just, like, to kind of, like, chill outside. They drove around Hollywood, returned home, again, before Elodie's curfew. And Elodie, when she was questioned on this, said, like, Damien was acting completely normal. And 
to her that means goofy. He was just joking around, was making funny voices from movies. Which, what I take from this is that the movie that he watched that night made more of an impression on this guy than the actual murder that he committed. Imagine doing everything right, like thinking you're meeting a friend after work, so this is why you don't tell anybody anything, because you're not meeting a stranger on the internet, you're meeting your actual best friend. Then for them to take you in the middle of nowhere, where, first of all, they will make you encounter somebody that you don't want to encounter, Damien was not supposed to be there, they take you then in the middle of nowhere with this person, where they dug a grave to put you in, like, for them to then go on to cinema after they kill you, and they're just so unfazed about this. Like, I just want this to sink in, where the pattern of behavior might point to the only motive here, which is that they simply wanted to do this. To be seen as cool, these culty murderers, these natural-born killers, whatever the fuck they thought the world was going to think of them. And second point is, Kinsey could have possibly saved her friend's life. Like, I'm not on top of all of that, oh, the woman plotted this murder and the man was, like, innocent. No, both of them pulled the gun here, and it would be debated which one fired the final, the fatal shot. But Kinsey could have possibly saved her life, and I don't mean like once the shot was fired, because then it was too late, the shot was lodged in her brain, like I don't think they were saving Kelly at this point. She was the one who was digging the grave the night before. There were so many steps here, like on the night, on the hike of like, as they were going out for a hike, she could have called for help. Or she could have even helped the police find the body, bringing some peace to the family. Instead, she did the complete opposite. The complete opposite where she was helping spread missing person flyers, lying to the whole family, and just being a piece of fucking shit. Instead, they dug a grave for Kelly the night before, lured Kelly to the remote gravesite, shot her in the back of the head, put her in the grave, covered the grave with a couch, abandoned Kelly's car at the mall, went on to create an alibi by eating out and going to see a movie, and acted as if they knew nothing about the murder, until it became very clear that there was conclusive evidence linking them to it. And on the day of the murder, Kinsey invited Miss Bullwinkle to go hiking with her. After Miss Bullwinkle got off work, she met Kinsey. They drove in Miss Bullwinkle's car out to the ghost town area. Kinsey said they were going to meet Damien. They were about ready to leave when Damien does show up. Damien led the three of them over to the location where the shallow grave had been previously dug, and they began laughing about this. Damien points the gun at the back of her head. Pulls trigger. Kinsey told the police that immediately after the gun going off, Damien blurted out that it was an accident, that he didn't mean to, to fire the gun. The first bullet isn't fatal. Kelly drops, and she's obviously hurt. These were her horrible last minutes. Kinsey claimed she wanted to quickly end Kelly's suffering. She said that she went ahead and she 
she fired um, the kill shot, you know, to put her out of her misery. Kinsey drops off Kelly's car at the mall parking lot. Damien meets her there with a change of clothes. The two of them will then go to a restaurant and then to a movie. They'll keep the receipts so they have an alibi. One of the parts that angers me the most, and I think number one would always be them lying to Diana, lying to Kelly's mom. Uh, but the other one, which is very close to that, is that they would also attend her funeral. Because at this point, they still weren't connected to this crime, right? They still had this alibi, the police were still connecting the bullets and the two of them to this case. So Kelly's memorial service was held in the chapel at the University of Redlands on October the 14th, 2003. Several hundred people would attend and Kelly was remembered as the girl who loved her horse and could take that dark cloud, find the silver lining and wear it as a necklace, as her friend would say in his eulogy. It was said that nobody was surprised that Damien was not crying at his funeral. People were seeing Kinsey cry for the first time, though. And after the memorial, the whole energy in the city changed because everybody was considered a suspect. Everybody was looked into. Like, as I mentioned, the year before, this city did not have a single murder. And now suddenly there is somebody on the loose. Somebody killed this girl, which... I don't know, I genuinely think these two did not think like they are going to get caught ever. They probably thought this is going to be a closed case because how do you not think of this? That people are going to be looking closely into you, so like your alibi might not work, my man, because there will be actual physical evidence connecting you to the crime. So the two killers had to work on those alibis because it seems like they were two gunshots to Kelly's body. And of course, they're not telling them that they know how Kelly was killed, waiting on one of them to sleep up. What proceeds next would be obviously the interviews with the friends, including Damien and Kinsey. So during the police interview, this is when we go into the timeline of Damien talking about a gun after Kinsey's cousin said like they have seen it in the car, him saying he disposed of it, right? And then the day after, they would bring in Kinsey, she told them about the alibi, both of them, yes, had the receipts for the movie and for them eating at the restaurant. But she would tell the police that Damien picked her up at 7 p.m., that they ate out and then went to see the movie at 8. And then Damien drove her home around 11 p.m. But the police, who had the movie stub and, like, who had the receipts, said that the dinner was ordered at 8.37 p.m. and that they paid for their movie tickets at 9.05 p.m. So they already suspected they're not telling them the full story. I have a video of them bringing Kinsey in that will kind of show, like, the officers telling her that they know about the gun, the joke being explained, and the gun accidentally discharging. So this is, like, when she's going to confess to it, and then, like, later, they I never saw the interrogation of this, like, when they bring her mom in, from, like, the transcript that I read earlier. But the police here lets her go, and they let her go because they know what she does next is going to be crucial for them to get these two. The interview Kenzie again because she said she had been with Damien that evening. 
they want to see if she will shed any further light. I know what gun shot Kelly, and so do you. I need you to tell me. I need you to tell me and just come clean and don't be protecting Damien. We're not getting all this stuff from her. So We're not going to tell you, but we do know that we we know the gun. We even got the serial number of the gun that was used when Kelly was shot. I mean, you didn't pull the trigger, did you? Damien pulled the trigger. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. This is the time for you to think about Kinsey. This is the time for you not to protect Damien. We need you to start telling us the truth about this. Finally, Kinsey cracks. She tells investigators that she saw Damien shoot Kelly. But it was all a terrible mistake. She said it was a practical joke that went wrong. Kinsey explained to the police that Damien pulled out the gun as part of the plan to scare Miss Bullwinkle. Just to see the look on her face. Kinsey tells police Kelly was funny when she was scared. There was never any intent to kill her. And unfortunately, according to Kinsey, the gun held by Damien accidentally discharged. During the evening of November the 4th, which is when this interview that I have just played um, takes place, Kinsey goes off and she calls uh, one of her exes. She tells him that her and Damien had killed Kelly, that it was meant to be a joke, but it had gone wrong, and Damien had accidentally shot Kelly in the head. So that happens the night before, and the police had basically just heard the same story in the interrogation room. However, what they were waiting for was for the phone call that Kinsey made the next day, November the 5th which is when the police would intercept a call between her and another boyfriend of Kinsey's, Peter Kowalski, the guy that she was still kind of on and off with. I'm not sure was he an ex or a current boyfriend at the time. She told him that after Damien shot Kelly, he gave the gun to her. And this is when she shot Kelly in the head while Kelly was lying on the ground moaning. So the police now had both of them, because at this point they had the autopsy, they knew that there were two shots that have been fired, so this is what they were waiting for. They would arrest Kinsey that same day, literally like an hour after they heard this on the phone call, they were like, yep, these two are a fucking menace to the society. So they arrest her as she was driving with her parents, and I think they were driving to like the lawyer's office or something because again like they knew that she was pretty much done for when she confessed to her part in the murder her mom told her you need to be put away and was angry at the police for not arresting her daughter immediately according to the records okay with the piece of information that we have on her mom like I don't think she's the nicest character. I think she's like the kind of discipline, like she reminds me of my aunt, right? Because I have witnessed this in person, where somebody disciplines like their son or daughter on the spot when like there's the most amount of people present. It's like, it's very clear you don't do this privately. It's very clear that you're disciplining your child here now for like the first time in years. So uh, why is it necessary? Because clearly it hasn't been done at her house. Damien was arrested about an hour later, so like 1.45 p.m., while watching Matrix Revolutions at San Bernardino's cinema. If we know one thing about Damien, it's that man loves a movie. He loves, he loves a movie. Shitty movie, good movie, he fucking loves that cinema. 
And when they informed that Kinsey, when they informed Damien that Kinsey had confessed, he said, I'm not going to answer any questions and I'm going to get up and walk into the house and take a nap. He was promptly taken into custody. Yeah, things are not gonna go his way for a substantial amount of time now. Just tough poopies, tough poopies, my man. At the beginning of December now, with their arrests, they were held at San Bernardino Detention Center and bail was set for each of them at $5 million. But the defense attorneys suggested that the killing simply was what they told the police, a practical joke that had gone bad. And at this point, I just have to mention the argument here. The defense attorney had that I kind of thought will be like developed a bit more at least for the trials and I couldn't find really the trial documents so it's still pretty much similar to what is about to come out of my mouth, right? So the defense lawyer explained to the press like early as they're just detained before the trials you know it is a joke only because the way that they dug the grave which already my man you're already saying there's premeditation involved the grave is only a foot deep and is about 58 inches to 51 inches long so it's not a real grave based off of the court documents this is not like the length and stuff like the grave that they dug could fit a person in and really did fit kelly in but also, like, you simply have to do better than this. They're like, imagine going to law school, right? And this is the only shit that you come up with. Like, it's not a real grave. This, I rest my case. Like, please don't. Like, that person is gonna be convicted, my man. I mean, they will. There will be two trials for Damien here and one trial for Kinsey. So, when it comes to trials, in 2005, they are going to have a joint trial with separate juries. So I looked into this, I think it's called the two-stage trial procedure, and um, it is done when the offenses are linked. Like, for example, when it's like multitude of offenses or when the two people commit technically the same offense. So 2005, one such trial begins. And I really wanted to know would this friendship survive? And this is answered in one of the articles because according to Kinsey's family, she herself now had doubts that Damien ever meant to play a practical joke. Yeah, beginning of trial, she's already like, soulmate, what? We never were, we never were that serious, guys. She wants nothing to do with him. After all of this is over, it's like, it's all on him. It's all on him, throwing him under the bus the way she threw those drug dealers under the bus. It's just, yeah. It's just the friendships. Like imagine, imagine killing for a guy. Like imagine going along all of this because of a man. Could not be me. Could not be me. As a teenager, as a grown ass woman, could not be me. Defense here at trial would go for the joke scenario. Rather that the gun fired accidentally. So I think they moved away from everything I have seen from the, the grave isn't really a grave because yeah, that sounds like still there was a grave on the bed. So Kinsey claimed that Damien's shot was an accident. It was supposed to be part of a practical joke and she decided to shoot only because she wanted to put her friend out of her misery. And as for the actual grave, 
they only show the grave to Kelly as part of that joke. Like, it was designed to play upon her fear of this location at the graves. And as we know, like, Kinsey does this fucking fear therapy, which she had done for her friends. So this is just a yeah, part of this nurturing pattern of behavior instead of just them being sick individuals. Damien, however, you see, he's simply inexperienced. He just, that's why the gun loaded with bullets, actual gun loaded not with blanks, with actual bullets, shot because he's simply inexperienced. He never meant to pull the trigger. As for Kinsey's defense, they would say she didn't fire the kill shot, like the second shot was the mercy one. So they explained the whole situation of like, yeah, Damien fired by accident, and then like she realized her friend is dying, so he passed her on the gun, and she fired the second shot just to like have a mercy kill of sorts for her best friend not to suffer. Prosecution knew that what they're working with is the autopsy, and the autopsy couldn't determine which one of the shots was fatal. So they had to prove that they had sufficient evidence, right, for these two, whoever fired the fatal shot, the other person aided and abetted them. So that Kinsey was going all of the lengths in order not to be caught, that she was helping out with the missing persons fire, she was leaving the answering machine messages, like, for people to find, she was doing everything, like, in order to establish the alibis alongside with Damien, they had the receipts for the cinema ticket, there was the other DNA evidence in Kelly's car that Kinsey was present there, which, yes, can be explained, but also why was it there, why was the car abandoned, like, there is a story here to be followed where Kinsey abandons the car, and that's the part that, like, makes sense after they stage this whole crime. The bullet casings, in terms of the evidence matching the gun that was connected to Damien, that Damien owned, and then the disposal of the gun, the way that the gun couldn't be found, however, there was a casing on the scene of the crime, and then that matched the shell casings from the guy that actually sold Damien and Damien's brother the, the gun. There's one thing that I think the prosecutors could have done better, because I feel like the story that they told made sense in terms of, like, the timeline of events, and then the pre premeditation, planning of the murder, bringing Kelly to the scene, what they did after in order to cover up their tracks. But something that could have been done better, and that I still... I don't want to say struggle with. I genuinely think these two did this in order to become famous and for that they will get away with it, so they can share this experience of murdering somebody, and therefore it was going to be, like, some fun and, like, some funny-ass experience. But trying to figure out the motive, right? Like, they kind of painted these shootings, the prosecution did, as this toxic relationship, teenage drama. Damien was angry at Kelly because she told Damien's girlfriend that she was having some sort of, like, intimate relationship with him. They didn't really explain how Kinsey fit into this story. And I believe they mentioned the whole movie inspiration and that these two were having, like, a creepy friendship of, like, soulmates and natural-born killers, all of that. But it could have been done better for us to have a full picture and for the jury to see just how both of these women, Kelly and Kinsey, were influenced by Damien in their own way. 
maybe because of this, we will have the verdicts that not everybody here expected. A jury came close to convicting Damien in March of 2005, but they deadlocked on a first-degree murder verdict. So he would end up having two trials, because the jury here would deadlock 11 to 1, that one person could not be convinced in favor of convicting him of a first-degree murder. So he had to be retried. However, Kinsey, who had separate jury because of this whole trial situation, right, was convicted of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 45 years in prison. So she got 25 years for count one, which I think is first-degree murder, and then a consecutive 20 years uh, to life for the personal and intentional discharge of a firearm enhancement. Judge who called this one of the most tragic and senseless cases of his 11 years on the bench, delivered a sentence that won't allow Kinsey a parole hearing for nearly 44 years. Damien, who somehow is a lucky son of a gun, managed to avoid the jury making a decision by pleading guilty in 2008 to second-degree murder, and he was, because of this, sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. I don't know where his lawyers studied, I don't know who his lawyers were, I don't know how he made this deal with the motherfucking devil, like how this guy got away based off of like the deadlock jury and then now suddenly making this deal where he only, only ended up getting 15 years, but he did. He will still have to appear for the sentencing from what I have read and this would give Kelly's family a chance to face him and read statements addressing their grief. So, in front of Damien, there was this montage of pictures of Kelly's childhood um, just playing up, and this is what caused him to do something that he had never done before. Not at Kelly's memorial, not while they were searching for her body, not while he was trying to cover up for his tracks. He cried. The attorney read his statement. I have wanted to tell Kelly how so very sorry I am for what happened to her that night. It is my hope that by expressing my feelings publicly to you, I will be able to convey to Kelly's mother and loved ones, in a very gentle way, the depth and sincerity of my feelings. Kelly's mom, Diana, and her grandmother, Dolores, both made statements during this proceeding, saying how no mother and grandmother should be able to outlive their child, that they should not be standing there that day. Another thing that Diana mentioned while making her statement is that no parent should have to be wary of their children's friends. She emphasized the need for the parole board to recognize the true nature of Damien. She described him as an unremorseful and deceitful murderer, labeling him a sociopath who is capable of inflicting similar devastation on other family shattering their dreams and lives. Basically appealing to the court, like, do not let this guy go, ever. He knows he made his crime and he got caught. There's no closure for anybody's life and this is just temporary with the possibility of parole. There is so much more to it. So let us speak about the possibility of parole and where this case is today. Kelly's mom, Diana, would pass away without knowing the destiny of her child's killers. She would die on February the 1st, 2014, in Redlands, after serving her country for 26 years, receiving an honorable discharge from US Coast Guard. 
she would be survived by her mother, which is so, so, so insane, for Kelly's grandma to outlive both her daughter and her granddaughter, and also by her father. And the sentiment here is that Diana died of a broken heart after her daughter was senselessly murdered. Speaking of the appeals, Kinsey and Damien would both appeal multiple times. Insane amount of times. So, for Kinsey, I managed to find some documents from 2006, then 2021, and they're all based on two aspects, really. One is about firing the fatal shot, rather her fighting that she didn't fire the fatal shot, and then intentionally firing a shot to cause harm, right? Because her whole spiel is that this was a mercy kill. To summarize all of the appeals, the parole board concluded that the defendant, here Kinsey, shot Kelly in the commission of the murder, and therefore the enhancement was proper. The parole was denied, and they're saying, like, she's still serving her sentence in California Institution for Women in Corona, and will be next eligible for parole in November 2026, which is too, too freaking soon. In October of 2019, though, the Board of Parole at the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation would recommend that Damien is granted parole. However, here the governor reversed the recommendation, so his next parole hearing was set for April 2021, and then it was rejected again. However, however, in January of this year, Damien Guerrero would be granted parole. He still remains incarcerated pending a review by the Board of Parole Hearings for any possible errors, in fact, and um, approval by the governor. This man is still in prison. There is a change.org page. I don't know if people are paying much attention to it, like as in the governors and the parole board, but I will still link it in the description. And as, like, at the time of the recording of this video, which is mid-July, he's still in jail. But the question is for how long? Because it looks like he might be released soon. And if my mouth is right, he technically served his sentence, or will end up serving the full length of his sentence of 15 years this year, because he was jailed in 20, 2008 after his trial. So he might be out regardless of the parole, because the parole hearing was there just for him to be released early. And I just need somebody like to look at this document and tell me it instills confidence in you as a parole officer. Someone is denied parole multiple times, hearings are postponed, and you just want to be the one to let him out after having the knowledge of what he had done to the victim. Again, very unrelatable. Could not be me. Just genuinely could not be me. So let me know what you think of parole in general, because I understand the concept, right? I understand, like, it is based off of good behavior, by somebody in jail. These two individuals are probably very different people they were at the age of 18 and 19 when they committed those crimes. And I guess you can argue that point. They are going to be able to integrate in the society. They deserve a chance to be out and live their own lives, because not everybody's the same. They have showed that they can be, like, these great characters while in jail. But jail is different than real life. The risk comes with the two of them making choices now outside of the prison walls. 
and whether or not they will be able to make right choices this time around. Damien is in his early 40s. It somehow just doesn't sit right with me that this man can just roam the streets, still enjoy his life, still get married, watch all of the fucking movies that he wants to see, and experience all of the things that Kelly could not. Kinsey might have the same fate when she is released, if she is released in 2026, so like mid-40s for her, after having served 21 instead of 45 years behind bars. If so, it would mean she didn't even serve the full sentence for one of her charges. It would mean the Department of Corrections does not believe the murder of Kelly Bullwinkle was committed with intent, that the words of Kinsey Nordman have some weight, and it was all a joke. At Kelly Bullwinkle's memorial, a picture of her was propped up next to a rock with the lyrics from 1000 Oceans by Tori Amos, one of Kelly's favorite songs. Written above the picture are the words, Sorry, I couldn't protect you. And I would have died for you. These were written by who Kelly believed to be her best friend. To reclaim the lyrics to a song she loved so much, I would like to end this video giving voice to the 18-year-old Kelly, giving the power back to her. These tears I've cried, I've cried a thousand oceans. And if it seems I'm floating in the darkness, I can't believe that I would keep, keep you from flying. And I would cry a thousand more if that's what it takes to sail you home, sail you home.